Okay. All right. So uh, welcome everybody uh, to MaydayCon 2020. This is our fifth panel of seven total today. I am your moderator, David Walters, and just want to say a quick thank you for tuning in. Uh, again, a quick note, as has been the rest of the day, uh, it's a live uh, free stream. So feel free to jot any questions, comments down. Uh, we'll try to pick out some questions if we have time. Uh, but first, we're just going to start with some introductions from our panelists, and we'll start with Mr. Cameron, and we'll just kind of go across and down. Hi, I'm Miles Cameron. I don't own a headset, so I may be unclear when you hear me. Uh, I write uh, both fantasy and historical novels, and I'm excited to be here. And it's been a really great con so far. I have really enjoyed the other panels and the readers. Hi, I'm Alina Boyd, and I'm um, a fantasy novelist as well. And um, yeah, really excited to be here. It's a nice change of pace from not talking to anybody. So. <laughs> I am. Uh... I'm Mike Carey, or Mr. Carey. I write comics and fantasy, sci-fi, a little bit of horror, um, whatever comes comes my way, really. Uh, hi, I'm Peter V. Brett. I'm the author of the Demon Cycle series from Delray Books. Uh, the first book is The Warded Man here in the U.S. and The Painted Man in the U.K. Um, and the series is complete at this point, so uh, it's great uh, quarantine binge read. Uh, I'm Mike Cole. Um, I write fantasy, science fiction, history. I've also sort of turned into a journalist in the last uh, few months. Um, my most recent book is 16th Watch, which is out from Angry Robot. It's the Coast Guard in space. Um, I have a comic called 100 Wolves, which will be coming out from Vault Comics in September. Um, and my new history book, The Bronze Lie, Shattering the Myth of Spartan Warrior Supremacy, will be coming out from Osprey in February. Um, and I'm on TV sometimes. I do a lot of things. What are you drinking? Ah, well, thank you for asking. Uh, I am drinking uh, Fort Hamilton, which is an excellent bourbon that is made in, uh, aha, Bourbon <laughs> Brothers, perfect. Mike comes over to my house and he always brings bourbon with him. And I thought it was like a gift for me, but it's really just so that there's good bourbon in my house when he comes over. <laughs> Basically, my basically my Fort Hamilton's excellent, and my other bourbon recommendation is Bow and Blade. Uh, yeah, I don't know if we had mentioned that this was going to be a drinking panel, so I did check and make sure everybody was drinking uh, before I before we started. So I'm not drinking alone. <laughs> You're not drinking alone. Was I was going to tag everyone when I mentioned it was a drinking panel. <laughs> Cheers. Cameron's double fisting. Cameron's double fisting. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so. Uh, Obviously, our main panel topic, uh, the writing process, is it ever perfected? And I jokingly had the first question as well, is it? Uh, but no, but seriously, um, does writing ever become a streamlined process or does it always hit bumps, obstacles, and stop gaps? Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I'm, on, I'm writing my sixth full novel now. And with every novel... I start writing it. I'm just like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I like, like, I feel like, I, I don't know if I lost my gift or if I just like was a fraud the whole time and don't have no idea what I'm doing. And then like, after a little while you, you hit the point of like, Oh, I know what I'm doing. This is fine. And then you, you like, uh, you know, there are sort of ups and downs through that creative process that are repeating themselves. And now I sort of recognize them sooner and like freak out about them less because I'm like, oh, right, I had the same moment of doubt for this book or that book, and I know it'll pass. Um, 
but it never it, it's never gets easy like it's always every book is a new mountain to climb I, I guess i guess i would say that um it shouldn't perfect itself if it does it probably means that you're writing the same book over and over <laughs> again um because you you, you uh as, as you were just saying peter you solve the problem of the book that you're working on you know you you think your way into that book you find the approach you find the voice and you write the book um if you start the next book and it's effortless it's probably because you're still in that same space you haven't sort of um you haven't been through that process again sure i, I mean and there are very famous fantasy authors who write the same book over and over and over again and everybody loves it and so there's nothing wrong with that but you're right if you're challenging yourself it's hard every time the ACDC of fantasy novels. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's funny though that, that that Peter described my process exactly. But if you ask us what our actual physical process is, it could not be more completely different because he like writes outlines of books, which just I don't understand how you do that. That seems strange. You, I mean, Alina, like Alina and I uh, have become friends uh, and text about writing a lot. So like, there's some insider baseball here, but like. Alina writes a book in like a month. Wow. If, if I'm slow, if I'm feeling like I'm really slow. <laughs> yeah, that's really she's, she's like, oh, you know, I, I need to write another 40,000 words. I'll have that done by Tuesday. Alina, how long, how long did Stealing oh. Thunder take? How long did Stealing oh, Thunder take? You don't really want to know. Do you, do you I do want to know. Stealing Thunder, know. Took, Stealing Thunder took me, um, I think, 13 days, uh, start to finish. The last 30,000 words. I wrote in one day, one afternoon, because like what oh, happened was if I had not finished it because I wasn't sure about it, I had that moment of doubt. And then a friend of mine was like, you should finish it. And I was like, when I don't finish things, I just don't finish them. And she was like, you should finish it. And I was like, well, if I'm going to finish it, I had better like give myself motivation. So I queried it and lied that it was finished, expecting that if anybody wanted it, they would just tell me like, well, give me a partial. And then I would have like months to write it. And then immediately the person was like, I'd like to see the full manuscript. I was like, oh, fuck. So then I was like, hmm, well, so I wrote the um, last 30,000 words in one day and sent it to them. So, yeah. How long a day was that? Uh, it was, let's see, I was taking breaks Three every 3,000 words. Hours. No, Two it was hours. like, it was like, it was probably like 12, like 10 to 12. Oh my God. Well, hold on. I, I really want to hear about this. This is fascinating. So was that 12 hours of just like forgetting to eat or like, oh my God, my bladder's full or like, or is it just like- No, 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 no. I I, I basically said, I'll write 3000 words and then I'll take like a 10 minute break and then I'll write 3000 words and take a 10 minute break. And so I was taking 10 minute breaks every every 3000 words. And I write about like, I don't know, a thousand words an hour. So it's like, I don't know how, maybe long, maybe more than that. Yeah, it must be more than that. I don't remember how many. Alina, it was a lot. Do you not have a copy? Hold on, hold on. I have a copy. Wait, what? I have a copy of what? This is insane. This is insane. Is I mean, it's it's just like, yes, I, I have, I mean, oh, oh my God, me, you have a copy. It is me just two so, years. So folks, wow. Just so folks, I'm sorry, I have this awful steam yard uh, uh, tag there, Dave. If you can get rid of it, I'd be so grateful. Sorry. I, I, I can't. I'm sorry. I'll take one for the team. But this is this is for folks who are watching on YouTube. This is the book that is being. Discussed. Yeah, yeah. And if if and I like look at it, and it's excellent. You would I never started, know that it was in thirteen days. Yeah, I. I mean, you know, the time. I don't necessarily think that like spending a lot of like hours not writing is an effective way of getting a book out there, though. Like that's the other me. side of it, right? Like. 
<laughs> she says really okay. Well, I mean, you, you have far more experience than I do, so I'm gonna um, I'm gonna let you have that. But yeah, so basically, if you pick up the book, like from page roughly 250 to 346, or somewhere in that range, was written in uh, one day. So yeah. Well, but what's what's awesome about this? What's awesome about this is that one of the uh, things I beat myself up on, and one about, and one of the things that. Uh, I have always thought of as a truism in writing is that if you rush, if you go too fast, that you, you know, the, that's wrong. That's no good. You know, you have to, and this is what, and I get this because I learned how to write basically from Pete and Pete's process is extremely deliberate. It's extremely slow. It's extremely giving, giving the cake as long as the cake needs to bake. Like that is Pete's thing. Um, and, and like, and you, you know, Pete's a very successful writer. So you look at that and you think, well, that's yeah, yeah. Correct, that must be the correct way. Um, but what's clear here, especially when you read Stealing Thunder and you see what a great book it is and you see how it's doing is that it is that, that the underlying thing here is that the process is individual, right? Here's an example of you wrote, let's see, you said from page 250, you wrote this much of the book yeah. in, in a day. Yeah, and and it and and it's sold. Yeah. and it and you know what well. the really funny part is? It's all the reviews and it's a great like, freaking book. Not, so like, that, well, all the reviews say like, "Wow, it really picks up at the end and is fantastic. What a great ending!" And I'm like, "Oh God, <laughs> like, I just need to write everything in one well, day and then it'll right. be perfect." You know? Well, so but, there's a lesson. There's a lesson, and the lesson is that process is individual, and that process is yeah. it's connected to to who the writer is and where they are in their lives at that time. That's actually a really good takeaway. The, and the, not having the, kids, not having distractions. I, I'd kind of like to suggest another thing too, which is it's possible that the more you write, the better you get at it. I know that that's not always a wildly popular thing, but uh, play, playing off of something else I do, which is sword fighting, uh, I'm a much better fencer than I was at 18 when I thought I was the best fencer in the world. And, uh, I, and I was consistently proven not to be the best fencer in the world, and that didn't <laughs> because I was 18. Uh, but I, I, I'm on book 41, uh, oh, I'm, learning, I'm learning a very sharp lesson right now about writing. I don't write as fast as you, Alina, but I write pretty oh. fast. And mm. um, I, I've been on some panels to talk about the writing process. I'll make this quick, but I've always said a thing, and I'm not going to say it today, because due to COVID-19, I'm writing a free novel sort of publicly on Facebook, an ancient Greek novel. And I'm learning that some of the things I've piously mouthed over the years are crap. I I um I actually do have more function than I thought. I do outline more carefully than I thought, and I really miss not being able to go back and back write, because of course, if you're putting your writing live on Facebook each day, you can't go back and fix a plot error, uh, 80 pages later or whatever. And I suddenly realized, oh, all that stuff I've said about writing chronological linear. Apparently, I don't actually do that. I'm full of crap. Um, but. <laughs> I, I will I will also say to what Peter said, I have changed technique. Like, I don't know, I've written a bunch of books and I no longer write the way I did when I was writing spy novels 15 years ago. I, I hope we all get better as we go. Maybe that's all I have to say is that like the more you do of it, the more you practice, the more you learn what you like and what you don't like. And I, I know we're not supposed to ask the questions, but I would ask like, do you learn things reading other people's books? Because I do oh, all God, the yes. time. Like, yeah, definitely. Like um, the only reason I read other people's books. <laughs> I can I can remember reading the first Hunger Games, and just just being blown away by um, so how so how, how expertly she judges uh, the the chapter breaks, 
The chapters are really short and sweet, and they always end on something uh, tantalizing and amazing that forces you to, to, to go on and read one more. It's, 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 uh, it's a beautiful piece of writing. The second and third, not so much, but the first one is incredible. I feel exactly the same way. I think there are I, two. Uh, great. <laughs> I have oh, yeah, a quote from an uh, uh, interview with a vampire that I always use to talk about the writing process. Um, and, I, and, and I, I will admit that this is from the movie. Uh, but there, there's like this moment where uh, Louis and Lestat are talking about why Lestat can read minds and Louis can't. And Lestat says, just turns to him and says, he shrugs and he's like, the dark gift comes to each of us differently. And I really feel like that's how it is about writing. Like Pete actually every, says every this. one of us writes completely it. differently. I don't know if he actually says it in the book, so I don't want to. Well, I Pete, like but I will say this, and, and Alina will agree with me. This is a thing Pete says to his friends who write. But, but it's I mean, so, I mean, he texts it's so spot on. <laughs> like every bit of writing advice can, you know, like you should consider it and see if it applies to you. But in the end, it may not work for you because all of our brains work differently and like the book comes out of your brain. Yeah. I, for every sentence I write, there's like a pace around the room and I like, you know, writing and rewriting in my head and like wring my hands and then I go back and I write a sentence and then I come to the next thing and I sort of consider it and I walk around some more and like, like it's a very slow drawing it out of me. I could never sit down and just like vomit out 30,000 words. Like I just, that's not how my brain works. Actually, Pete, but, like I like my end product, so you know. I want, yeah, and I, I think that's a good point. Yeah, Peter, my one of one of my oldest friends in Toronto, and one of my wife's best friends since childhood, is a writer who's uh, won the Toronto Book Award, and she's been shortlisted for the Booker. She's a really serious writer. She likes to say that on a good day, she puts out 125 to 250 words, and. Um, yeah. I, no, she's not kidding. I've actually sat with her in a co coffee shop and written. And she taught me that what you just said is absolutely true. We're all just, we all have our own way. And, you know, like we can all just be friends. No, I mean, there's, yeah, there's no rivalry well, here. It's just actually, different for everyone. I have a question for Pete, if you're willing to answer it. Um, was that your first five books are very, very different than the book you're working on right now. And you and I have had some really interesting conversations about how that process has been entirely different. So it, yeah. you absolutely conduct this question if it's going to reveal. No, 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 I don't care. I'll talk. All right. So, all right. So, all right. So here's a great example, right? You are now writing something completely different. Well, I mean, are... the key difference, I'll just, I'll just say it, is that my first five books were third person and now I'm writing a first person book. And I wrote that first person book maybe like i maybe went into it with a bit of arrogance thinking like oh you know i know how to write books and like i can just switch uh, uh person but it's not that simple um i wrote a book like that was the plot was was good it's solid but the third it, it keeps slipping into a sort of third person point of view rather than a very direct first person one and um I got to the end of the book and when I sort of realized that, you know, in third person, you want to show and not tell, but in first person, you have to tell and not show. And that was a, like, once I made that mental shift, I was like, oh shit, I need to rewrite this, you know, like so much of this book to, to reflect that. And so I, I'm doing a deeper rewrite than I've ever done on a book before because I had this like one moment of clarity where I was like, oh, I was doing this wrong the whole time and had to go back and, and redo it. But I think that the final product is gonna be amazing as a result because 
like I put all those hours into it. I'm like really happy with that. I was just gonna say, show show don't tell is like the dumbest piece of advice for novelists that I've ever heard in my life. Like maybe it works for screenwriters or something, but like the idea that you're not telling when the whole thing is you writing a story that's telling people a story, I'm just like always confused by that. And especially since I write just a general sense to not be passive. Right, sure, I guess. Maybe which is better advice than show, don't tell, because I'm always like, hmm, well, well I, writing this in first person, I'm gonna tell you what happened, so. The correct, advice, the correct advice is show and tell, right? <laughs> I, I know, mean, like, I guess, sure. do it, you know, like, pay attention, and when it's appropriate, show. Write a comic book, right? That's, well, this well, is show and I'm, tell. I'm, Writing comic books was uh, was how I learned to write. Really, I did comic books. I I, I spent my twenties writing terrible novels that had no shape or structure at all, and then I started writing comics. And the thing about comics is, you kind of have to think about the structure, because you've got a canvas that's a very fixed size, and if you run out of pages before you run out of story, then you're screwed. So you have to cost everything out in terms of pages. You have to obsess about structure. And you come out of that with much better, well, I came out of it with a much better ability to sort of control uh, the pace and flow of a, of a story. Yeah, this I am. Um, this is absolutely true. And um, I just want to say I was very excited to be on this, pointing in the wrong direction. I'm very excited to be on this panel because I realized that like, I read all of Mike's uh, Hellblazer uh, graphic novels and freaking love them. And I was oh, and, and like, Two days ago, I was like, "Oh, it's that Mike Carey." Yeah, like, and Mike, uh, one of your artists for some of your Hellblazer run, Tony Akins, is my artist for Hundred Wolves. Okay, so I'm so we have a comic book shared pedigree, and I know uh, Alina. Cool. I don't know if Alina's willing yes. to talk about it or not yet, but Alina is also working on a comic. Uh, I am working on a comic, a graphic, a graphic novel, um, YA aimed because that's kind of a new emerging thing, or at least it was until COVID. We'll see if it still is, but um, yeah, that'll be exciting. I'm um, working with somebody in a more graphical sense. It's totally foreign to me. I am not a very visual thinker, not a very visual writer. Sometimes I'm like, people are like, "What do the characters look like?" And I'm like, oh. like, "That's not how my brain works." Like, I, I guess. I don't know, whatever it says is how they look. That's, yeah, that's fine. Um, I don't know. I don't know if anybody else is like that. It was just me, but I have a real hard time with the whole visual aspect of things. But Comic book, comic book dialogue, the punchiness of um, uh, how that, that you have to convey so much information about a character or about what's happening in the plot in literally a single line or two lines of dialogue absolutely up my novel writing game. It changed my prose. And it, this goes to what... Uh, Miles was saying before, and one of the things that I think none of us have said now is that writing process is also a function of where you are in life, right? It's a function. So yes, Pete sure. has Pete has two small children. We talk about this all the time. Well, I'm um, sorry, Cassie is. I guess she would be very upset. With one me mid one mid-sized child and one. Thank small. you. Right. So <laughs> I apologize, Cassie, if you're watching this that I called you small. I do not think of you as small. Um, but the point is, when you are uh, when you have that in your life. Uh, Alina, Alina talked before about having no children. Um, mm. Miles, Miles has talked about, um, I don't know, his experience with uh, Platea 2021 20, that is happening or your fencing career. Like these are things that- I have shape... a teenager. How, how old's your yeah. teenager? How old's your teenager? 16. Okay. COVID-19 oh, is, COVID <laughs> is not ideal for 16 year olds in case no one else has one. This is um, mm. hell come to earth for the social life of a 16 year old girl. Well, oh that, my gosh. That's the thing, like a 16 year old, like the, the benefit of having a 16 year old is they're usually not in the house. 
<laughs> like <laughs> by that point, they're like, they don't want to be there any more than you want them there. Uh, so, wow. Okay. Sorry. Um, Miles. I, I mean, I, no, I'll still fine. take that over my three-year-old, but. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. but, the, but the point being is that your life circumstances impact when you can write, where your headspace is when you sit down to write. Yeah. I'm a sing I'm a single guy with a steady day job who lives alone. What you're seeing in my background is basically my entire life, except when I go outside to do volunteer supply runs or work out in the park or whatever. Um, you know, but like the pandemic, which sits on all of us, right? That that impacts where our headspace is. And I bet you that there that we will all talk about a year from now or two years from now what our COVID-19 writing looked like and why it was different. And we are probably, as we speak now, not aware of that difference. But but when you talk about the individuality of writing and when you talk about how the process is impact, look, we're human beings and our brains are these malleable, organic things. Um, there's all this talk about anxiety and depression, how that impacts writing. And I think the reason that all of this talk exists is because that is so integral to our writing process, right? It's where we're at in life and what's going on. And the truth is we probably don't even know what's going on. I don't know about the rest of you, but I look back on every single book. Example here, The Armored Saint is probably my most popular fantasy novel. And there's this okay. scene, in, thank you very much. There's a scene in it where uh, this this older mentor figure is, is talking to the protagonist who has just taken a swing and missed on the love of her life. And she's, you know, just devastated by this and doesn't ever want to love again. And he's sort of saying, look, I know you're in pain, but the act of loving, the fact that you tried to love, the fact that you are a person who loves is what makes you a decent human being. Like that's a good thing and you must never turn your back on it. And it's years later that I look back at that book and I realized I was coaching myself through a breakup, right? That that literally had just happened to me. Um, and I had no idea when I was writing it. If you had put a gun to my head and said, why are you writing this scene? I would have said, well, I'm just trying to write a great book here. I don't know what you're talking about. It isn't until it's retrospectively that you look back on your own work and you see these events in your own life playing out, even when you don't mean them to. There is a therapy aspect to writing where whatever the problem that you're wrestling at with at a certain time bleeds out into your prose. And sometimes you clean that up in the editing phase and, 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 and wash it out. And other times it becomes like an overriding theme of, of one of your books. And, and sometimes you look oh, back yeah. at a book and realize there was a theme there that you didn't even do on purpose because it was just where your head was at at the time. That is absolutely true. I, I, can, I can talk about that for any one of my books, really. I, I couldn't agree with Mike more. And I'm just going to say one of the things I can... I can see when I look back at my own books. And I think one of the, anyway, I'll leave that aside, is, uh, oh, I was angry that day. No, Miles, I yeah. want to hear, Miles, I want to hear about your own book and where it played in. I want to hear that specifically, please, if you don't mind. Well, I, I just, I, I noticed that characters, characters I love myself that I wrote. Does that sound dumb? Anyway. No, that, that, no they're uh, real people in your head. Yeah, that doesn't sound dumb at all. I can recognize when Aramnestos of Plataea has become an asshole because I was angry. And I, I think I'm a good enough writer that I play off that because all of us are angry. And when we're angry, we're usually assholes. And I have people react to him that way. But nonetheless, I read back over it and go, I wonder what was going on that day? Because that's not mm. what I really think about the world. And that's super fun because now when I read other people like CJ Sherry, I'm a big CJ Sherry fan, or Alexander Dumas, and I come to that moment where, for instance, Porthos is acting out and I go like, so, Duma, what was going on in your life that day? 
yeah. Well, that's and and that's the thing that that like it makes your characters real. That like, look, every one of us is a dick sometimes. Like it just happens. Like some days, like you just like you need to get to the bathroom and somebody won't stop talking. And like you you you, you say or you talk or behave differently than you would otherwise. And like if we don't include that in our fictional characters, they're not really three dimensional. And like sometimes you'll look at a character and be like, oh, why would they say that? That's not the kind of person they are. But you know what? Like sometimes you're just having a shit day and like you're a bit of a dick. And like that, if that doesn't, if that gets washed out of your fiction, then your characters start to seem flat. Colin McCarthy, who was the director on Girl with All the Gifts, um, said to me quite early on in that collaboration, you need to know the worst thing about your, your good characters, your protagonists, and the best, most noble or most admirable thing about your, your villains, your antagonists. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it comes out in the story or not. You need to know it's there so that you don't write them as, a, as just a, a plot function. Yeah. 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 I mean, actually, that's like that's like a lot of. Um, I had some reviews of Ceiling Thunder because there's a character in there who's kind of um, well, he's a rapist, but he's also um, somebody who, in the prose, comes off as really not likable, but also not that he never does anything that's not like the, that he never does something good. That doesn't happen because that's not how people are, right? Like you can end up with really complicated circumstances where you might have accusations against a presidential candidate you're probably gonna vote for anyway, um, because you know those are the circumstances we find ourselves in, right? Like, so I think that it's one of those things where in fiction, I, it's your duty as an author to have um, your characters have some of that grit and depth to them. I don't know if it necessarily comes out like, I don't know if when I'm angry, I write angry characters. I think when I'm angry, I don't write. Like if something in real life is distracting me, I have a really hard time writing. I need yeah, something to be like sort of. Do you yeah. remember where you were on that 30,000 word day? In terms of my, my emotional level? Yeah. I was like, shit, I better crank this out. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> like, I was like, I was like, guess I better sit down and write. And I kind of did a play on it. I was like, okay, well, it's going to be 30,000 is a lot of words. So take a break every, I think I took a break every 10,000 words. I don't really remember. It was kind of a blur, but um, I was like, yeah, just right. crank it out. And also like, I, I was used to writing, um, really long papers for grad school, like at the last minute. And so I was like, okay. And those like require all these source citations. And so you have to be able to do all the bibliography and everything. And so you have to have like 70 sources in your bibliography and write the paper and doing that the night before is a pain in the ass. So, um, so having had that experience, I felt like I was well prepared for the, um, for, for writing the end of Stealing Thunder. Though, I mean, it's not always that fast. And I think too, um, what Miles was saying makes sense to me because if, if people ask me like, how do you write? Do you outline? No. Do you write chronologically? Yes. So you get the characters, you write them through chronologically. But like, I prune the heck out of my books. Like, I will write and I will realize like, no, at some point, this path was not the path it should have taken. Like I introduced the character I should have introduced or I did something that I shouldn't have done. And like, actually, this was where the book was last good. And everything after that point is not good. So I will just delete that entire chunk. What's so like the, the, current, what's the right, largest But the chunk? thing is that like when you d delete 15,000 words, you're deleting a day's work. It's yeah. not the same well, wait, as it is for, for the rest of us. <laughs> I want to know, I want to know, Alina, what is the largest chunk that you were just Okay, like, so two ah, things. First of all, the most, the most recent chunk 
the most recent chunk I was writing, um, and, and Pete knows this because I, I tell him every day just to follow him, but um, I'm writing this new YA project. I got to the 40,000 word mark and I was really unhappy with it. This was this week. And I was like, fuck. And so I was like, okay. So I deleted it all the way back to 16,000 words. So I deleted 24,000 words. Oh, and then, and then as of, that was two days ago. As of noon today, I'm at 52,500 words. <laughs> so basically I wrote all of that back in one day, plus 10,000 words, then added another 10,000 yesterday. And then today I didn't really get a chance to write because I had to help somebody move some stuff and do this. So, um, but uh, anyway, so, the, so the, largest I've ever, the largest I've ever done was probably the sequel to Stealing Thunder. The book is 124,000 words long. Um, I wrote it over the course of six months and I wrote 450,000 words oh and 124,000 of those made it into the book. So the largest chunk's for like 80 or 90K, something like that. I don't know. Like somewhere in that Mike range. and Peter are about to start crying. <laughs> I just chuck it. And then, and then I, you know, I normally say look this. this vein on my, look at this vein on my forehead. Like this <laughs> but is... I never go back to it. So I wonder now why even keep it. I should just hit the delete button and own it. Oh, at some point. No, 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 no. You always yeah. keep your ghost work. Yeah, never, you have, never I, delete anything for for you, real. You have an excised. I have an excised uh, words file, and anytime I delete stuff, I paste it in there. Right? That's what everybody does. I hope. Be too big a file at this point. You don't know yet if there will be. A, I just, a, I just an duplicate Boyd the file. Presidential Library, and they'll need that for the archives. Right. I like, just duplicate the file uh, so that I have, and then name, rename it with a new draft, and then delete everything that I want to delete, and then march on with the okay. writing. All right, so um, but you yeah, have so. you have that old draft, so that I, I do, but I've never ever like there's never been a time where I was oh, like, you never you know what? I write it, the it anyway. Alina, no, Alina, yeah. when you're Alina, when you're the next freaking George R. R. Martin, like your Not fans are gonna, <laughs> yes, you are, and your fans are <laughs> no. gonna want that. They're gonna want that. Well, here's gonna, they're not gonna want the shitty version of the book. Like, who wants that? That's <laughs> terrible. The one collector. Oh, here's that, the one that, that I thought was true. totally bullshit. That is true. Why don't you read that? Like, buy it. I have versions of books I would never want anyone to read ever, ever, ever. I mean, I have, like, Stealing Thunder was my 201st manuscript, so I have 200 manuscripts I don't want anybody to see, so. It's, it sounds like your process is just about the opposite of mine. I, I, I have a fairly, <laughs> yeah. I have a set, a set word count every day, and it's usually about, if I get to 2,000 words, then I feel like I've earned my keep. If, I, if I'm in the groove, I'll carry on. But I, I often stop around about the 2,000 mark, and that will usually be early evening. Um, I obsessively outline. I usually do, like, um, a 20 or 30,000 word abstract of the novel before I start writing it. But I don't stick to the uh, to the outline. The outline is there as a safety net. Once you start writing, something more organic starts to happen. You start to live in the space of the characters. You start to, um, to fill out the world. And it starts to make sense to you in a way that the outline didn't. Um, but, it, but it's good to have the outline. And I can't work without it. Uh, I, can't, I can't sort of skip that stage. Mm. I keep my uh, I'm a lot closer head, to I that. Think. Uh, I mean, do you, I, Peter? I, I, I always want to know: Do you do you at some point go off of your outline that's that's a thousand pages long? Do you never, uh, do you ever go off never. of that? Uh, well, I'm not never, but very infrequently. I, really? I, for okay. Every book that I've written, there is an outline that is somewhere between 150 and 200 pages. That's just basically just it, it, it's it's not even a it's like a bulleted list. It's it's like chapter one. This this person's POV. This happens. This happens. This happens. This happens. Section break. This happens. This happens. This mm. happens. Chapter two, and mm. and I lay that out for the entire book, so that I know everything that happens in that book from the beginning to the end, so that I know that the pacing is right. I know that the the, the 
sequence of events makes sense. I know that the climaxes are where I want them to. I know that the timelines all sync up. And like when I have that document, I'm trying to keep my hands, I talk with my hands, trying to keep them on the camera. But when I have that document, like all together, then I start writing the prose. So usually there's a couple of months of work before I even start writing prose. And then when I do, the prose is about how do the characters feel about the stuff that I already know is gonna happen. So there is an exploratory phase in the prose writing that's different from my outlining. The outlining is all like Vulcan, you know, trying to talk with my hands and like, it's, it's very like logical and like not full of emotion. It's like the, this sequence of events happens and that gets us to the thing that happens at the end and here's the secret of how they saw it. And then when I start building in the emotions to it, then you're sort of like, then you sort of feel this character who's going through this sort of pivotal moment in history or whatever, and you experience their emotional state through that. And that's sort of what carries the book and makes it uh, uh, accessible and lovable and makes, the makes you care about the plot because you wouldn't care about the plot if you didn't care about the people. So there are two phases to my writing, but like, this is why, like, I have a very structured process. I cannot just like, I used to do that. I used to just jump in and free write and like, look, it works for some people, but it, but what I, in the first draft of the painted man, also known as the warded man, I, I wrote one draft and submitted that. And it was a, it was a bad draft. The, no, it wasn't. It was terrible. The whole second half of it was garbage. And like, you have to send it to me so I can. Oh, and it was man. entirely Arlen POV. There was no, there were no oh. other POVs. The book and needed like, work, but it, it ends. It ends. It ends with Arlen being the Duke of Angiers and building warded roads, and it's boring oh. and stupid and like it, it's bad. Look, it needed and, work. Yeah, it needed, and when, it needed and, when work. I, and when my agent pointed that out to me and made me rewrite sixty percent of the book in order to get it to something that could sell something clicked in my head and I realized you can't just make this shit up as you go. You have to know where you're going or else you waste all of this time and you waste all this effort. And so it completely changed my writing process. And from that point oh, forward, I was very clear about my story outlines and I'm, and I'm gesturing off the camera. Miles, 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 I see you waving your hand. Go. I don't want to break in, but I want to say I'm somewhere between you guys. I, I write a 40 page outline. I didn't used to, by the way. I used to write no outline at all. I think I did about 20 books with no outline. And, um, just 20? <laughs> just 20? Just, just like, you know, before my, my future career is speaking to me here. But, but somewhere in the middle of the Red Knight series, I realized that with 170 characters, I wasn't keeping up without an outline. And that may actually be aging brain. Like, we change, too. It's not just that our characters change. Um, but what I want to say... I. I uh, to to sort of everybody, to Peter and Alina and what, whatever is, I write a 40 page outline. It's pretty meticulous. It's a lot of it is frame and, um, and very like what Peter is saying, emotionless frame, very Vulcan. But the thing is that I jumped that shark in five seconds and often by page 100, there's nothing left of my outline. And yet I've learned oh. a lot from, I've, I've learned a lot from writing the outline. I've learned a lot about what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. Uh, I just don't need the outline anymore. So I, I fall somewhere between in that the outline isn't a waste of time. The 40 page outline and my dad, who is a professional writer, 
and has been all his life, always says, like, never write for free. Never write anything that someone isn't paying you for. And I always feel a little guilty writing outlines because nobody's paying me to do that. But That's not true. I don't accept that. The outline <laughs> is part of your process for writing the finished book. Peter, I'm kidding. I may have been drinking bourbon. <laughs> my sarcasm may have been too dry. All I'm saying is uh, I don't feel bound by the outline I've written. And often I, I jump those tracks and drive off somewhere else. And it's still not a waste of time. And that's what I've started telling people because I used to say, oh, I don't outline. I don't need to outline. Now I need to outline. It's not even I need, though. Like, for me, it's, it's different, though. It's different because, like, Peter, you've never had the situation. Like, uh, this is me for writing. Writing for me is like, I don't know, it's like watching like a soap opera because I'll be writing and then this character that I had in mind and I had some ideas for them, they like do something totally different and are something totally different than I thought they were. And I'm like, oh, damn, it turned Alina, out she was his daughter all along. Oh, no. Alina, then, that never, I like, so what you're describing right now, this experience of you put, you have the character is so fully fleshed in your mind, you put them on the stage and they do stuff that you don't want them to. And it takes the story in a new direction. Never happens to me, ever. And I've always, I, it will. That's Mike's, it's Mike's dream for that to happen. It? For a character to come <laughs> so to life in his head that it tells him what to do. Like he's dreamt of that for that years. I know this for a fact. Time. I never write a book where that doesn't happen. And like, I think part of it too is like, I saw this great article about how actors and actresses, um, when they're acting, they, um, they actually have, their brain's uh, kind of um, prefrontal cortex regulating identity is suppressed. And so they actually have less of a sense of their own identity when they're acting because they're sort of subsumed in this altered state of consciousness by being this other person. And I kind of feel like that's how writing for yeah. is for me. It's like yeah. an altered state of consciousness. Like yeah. when I'm writing, I am not me, I am those other people. And sometimes those other people are just like, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Like I've had so many instances and they always make it better yeah. because I always have these instances where like, you expect because the plot needs something to happen or you need like this character to get along with this other character or whatever. And then the other character's like, why well, just fucking kill him? And you're like, well, you should, well, but the, but if you, oh yes, good point. You probably should just kill. Yeah, so just like kill a D &D him. Game. Yeah, badass. Like, right, like, but I mean like, but it's like, you're sitting there and it's your own head and you're like, how did my own brain surprise me? It doesn't make any sense. Like that shouldn't happen, but it happens all the time. I, it, I, it, makes, it makes sense because I mean it's the other side of your process, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you write without an outline, then you're mm. you're you're kind of you're kind of weaving the characters together as you write the story. They're coming together in your head. They're coming together on the page, and it makes sense that that process should sometimes be um, should sometimes take a direction that's different from the one that you originally uh, had in mind. Yeah, I, and I say when I say I don't outline too, I want to make it clear, like like when when Miles was saying like oh. I write chronologically, but it turns out I don't write chronologically because if you actually make me write chronologically where I don't get to go back and change anything, it turns out that, that I, I like to go back and change things. And for me, like, I don't outline. I did spend a month doing research and writing notes to myself. My notes are the notes of a crazy person. They're literally as the thoughts occurred to me, not in an order that would make sense to anyone using it. Um, and there's like 50,000 words of just thoughts that occurred to me and like, oh, this scene should maybe look like this or, oh, this castle should look like this or oh isn't this a cool thing that we saw from the chivalric romance and they're just in no order at all for fifty thousand words um See, i have outline. those things and and when i have those ideas i go through my outline and i find the appropriate <laughs> place where they belong and i put them in there and then when i get to that point of the story i put them in 
I don't just, you know, like, and this is like, so there's, there's two things here. And one is like, like my outline is sacrosanct. Like when I write an outline, by the time it's done and I start writing prose, I trust that outline and I have to trust it the whole way. Every, like maybe once a book, a character, like I'll get to a point and I'm in the character's emotional state and the plot tells them to do something and the character's just like, nope, nope, not gonna do that. That'd be stupid. That's not me, not gonna do that. And then I have like an oh shit moment and have to sort of tear a chapter apart and rewrite it and fix it. So like, it does happen like once in a while. Semi-sacrosanct. It doesn't happen, it doesn't happen all the time. But the thing so, is, the different thing about your writing backwards camera. Uh, the thing about, I can't even point at you. The thing about your writing process is that uh, you are writing seven books at the same time. Like how many projects are you working on right now? Who's that? I know, I know you, I like, so like every one of you, because I'm working on one. Three. Three. Um, three, four, four, five, five, five. If you count, if you count the short nonfiction, I, I just picked up two articles for Ancient Warfare. So if you're counting short nonfiction, I'm working on five projects at once. Jesus Christ! How do you do that? Like that's the thing. You're juggling all of that in your head. Like of course you can't like focus on a coherent like outline if you're juggling Ooh. all that in your head. And Ooh, but the thing out. is, like it works. But the, it, the thing is, like Dark Gift is different for all of us. I could do a coherent outline. I just will do the coherent outline and then I will never I touch that it. book again. No, no, because no, I will just never write. Like I did an outline one time in my life. One of my like 200 manuscripts before Stealing Thunder, I did a detailed outline like you're talking about. And then my brain was like, look, job's done. You did the book. And I was like, well, no, now we have to actually write it. And it was like, but we know what's going to happen. So all the joy is gone. Well, Goodbye. And that was the other thing. I never point like, that was that Mike and I talk about this all the time, where it's, it's just like, every, authors are always like, well, if I write the plot and I know what's going to happen, it's not fun anymore. And I'm just like, why Why should you expect your job to be fun? Right. Because it's your job. No, no, no. You are working. Because if my job isn't fun, I won't like, do it. No, but Miles, Miles. I know I've had a lot of jobs in my life that weren't fun, and I still did them. Right. And know, so like, this, this is the thing: is like, writing is not fun. Writing is work. Like writing is, is a lot of mental processing power. So I like looking back at what I've written. So this is what? the paycheck for all the hours that I spent. Like if it was a salaried position where they're like, "You're a writer, eight hours a day. Here's your salary and your benefits." And it, yeah, it's you then, it I'd be like, job. "Oh, okay, it's not like, fun. It's not fun every day." But like, but like. When you're writing it, it's like, well, this may or may not sell. Your agent may or may not like it. Your editor may or may not like it. Um, and then people may or may not buy it. Well, I mean, holy cow, like at some point you have to be like, so, well, it so needs this, to be something for me too at that point then. I've actually written about this. So this is where the misery ethic comes in handy. And I think, Miles, Miles, you were Canadian Navy, right? Miles, you were in the Canadian Navy? United States Navy, thank you very United much. States, Mike. Okay, sorry, 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 sorry. Hi. <laughs> I apologize. Oh, I, I, I see Miles as a Canadian. You. Are you are you not a Canadian? I I, I, I am totally Canadian. However, I am very proud of my United States Navy service. I am very uh, proud of your United States Navy service. Navy. Okay, well, so one of the things that Miles will be familiar with is that you cultivate this sense of um the idea that the that crucibles turn iron into steel. And the longer you stay in the crucible and the hotter the crucible is, the stronger the steel is. There is a reason that's, that's not true. The, well, 
<laughs> there's a reason. There's a metaphor. Chemically there, not true. There is a, it, is, it, is, it is absolutely chemically, chemically not true. Chemically, that's not that how that works. <laughs> 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 I'm about to reach for my copy of the Night in the Blast Furnace to teach. No, no, that no, is no. amazing. Alina is of course correct. Alina is of course correct. Um, at oh. least culturally, though, that is the ethic that is imprinted on all of us. This idea that if you suffer more, uh, Stephen Pressfield talks about this. That if you meet United States Marines and you try to complain about anything. The Marine in invariably will try to one up you on how they had it worse. It's like that Monty Python skit. Uh, you're familiar with it. You know, they used to wake us up three hours before we went to bed. Um, that that Monty Python skit. But that misery ethic, that idea that uh, when you're suffering, that that is a pathway to producing something great, that there will be a reward for your suffering. Uh, it's certainly not uniquely military, but it is part of American military culture, at least. And it's something that I'm familiar with and that Miles is likely familiar with. And the um, there is a piece of that that is useful to me at least when I sit down and have the experience that Alina is describing because I learned how to write from Pete. So I I have these long- That's not true. That is not true. Well, I, to lie. I get to decide who Mike I learned and I taught from. each other how to write. We, we've, been rereading, we've been reading and commenting on each other's work for, for since 1997, how long is that? It's a long, a long time. Yes, we're, I'm very old. Um, um, so, but, but, the, but, the point, but the point I want to make here, the point I want to make here is one of the things I, I took from Pete is this is this structure and process that Alina just described as kind of sucking the joy out of it. Anyone who knows me on Twitter knows that I'm anti-joy in all of its forms. Um, and when I, but, but, but the point is I get into writing and it is that labor and it is that, look, I don't want to sit down and write. I want to check Twitter. I want to play video games. I want to, you know, talk to my friends. I want to go for a walk. I want to do all anything but write. And I'm in good company, right? I know Agatha Christie has famously said that she wants to do anything but write or famously said that she wanted to do anything but write. Um, and, and I, and I draw on this misery ethic, this military misery ethic that, suffer now and that you, knowing that the reward will be sublime work in the in the future um and that is something i used to, it's bullshit of course but i use that at least to galvanize myself through that process through that um process of like this sucks why am i doing it i don't want to do it i want to do this shiny thing over here mike i will support everything you say about sparta but i am completely antithetical on this subject so go ahead, go ahead I, I, down, i'm so with down. you i'm with you because i, like, I will go i for love a walk. to write i probably love to write above almost all things in the world oh, i, I would it. probably write if no one paid me uh and uh i one of the things i really believe <laughs> that i hope my wife cannot hear me say right now is <laughs> i walked out of clandestine operations and said i am never doing a fucking job i don't enjoy again as long as i live um, and that there are like two things I took out of the military. One was the only per real time that I was seriously threatened and shot at when it was over. One of my friends said, basically, like, you're never going to complain about crappy beer again, are you? And I was like, no, <laughs> you're right. All beer is good. Like, ah, I have learned what bad. You still is. feel now that I've way? Seen, now that I've, yeah, I still kind of do. And the, the other thing is like, no, I'm never going to do a job I don't want to do. Um, I love writing. Uh, sorry, Mike. I don't want you to feel I'm taking you. No, on. no, no, I, no, 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 no. Don't I, worry. Don't worry. Don't I, worry. Process is Canadian, and you coming out now. <laughs> I, love, I love writing, and I am I am a good new Canadian. But I I love writing, and I uh, I love the story, and I think I'm kind of lining up with Alina. I want to know what happens, 
And if you make me write too much outline, sometimes I kind of go like, well, now I know what happens. Like that, that's, uh, there's no surprises left. And if you don't mind, the thing is you're, you're creating this, you're creating this false dichotomy between, uh, you know, job I love and I'm trying to talk with my hands on the screen here, job I love and job I don't love. And like, there's this divide between them. And like, if I love it, I have to be having fun. And if I don't love it, I'm not having fun. And you know what? I love my job. I love it. I, there, I am doing the thing that I always wanted to do for my entire life. I'm so freaking fortunate to get to write books, uh, you know, as a career and be able to support myself and my family by doing that. Like, I have nothing but respect for that. And, 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 and I'm so happy about it. And I would not choose any other job. But writing itself is still hard and it's work. You know, it, like, like, and like, I look back at my books when they're done and I really enjoy them. I listen to my own audiobooks when I want to refresh my memory on what's going on. And like, I get swept up in the story because I have a different narrator sort of telling it to me. And, and like, I really like, like, I'm happy with my work, but the actual process when I'm doing it is hard and it's work. And sometimes I've already spoiled it for myself and, and I don't get to find out what happens at the end in a big surprise. I have to just, well, Peter, that carefully, be a false you know, mold it out you. of play. It's not a false dichotomy for me. For, for me, I for mean, me, I, the, I the, our gift comes to us all differently. Yeah. For, for me, the false the false dichotomy is between the sort of the the plan, planning as purgatory and the the writing of the novel as a prize because I I I, I enjoy outlining. Outlining is just one stage. Even before I get to that, I've done like uh, pages and pages and pages of the kind of notes that Alina was describing, which falls short of an outline, just notes about this different aspects of the world. And it's, it's kind of, it's a process of acclimatization. You're, you're creating a space and you're starting to inhabit that space and you do it by degrees. And the outline is part of that. And it's, it's, a, it's a pleasurable and an essential part for me. My I, would say that, like, I, I, I agree. It's, I think writing the outline is, is is definitely more fun than writing <clears throat> the prose, but but they but they both have their own rewards. I just I find outline writing is a lot more easygoing and fun because it that's the time of discovery and that's putting the yeah. puzzle together and, and and creating this sort of skeleton out of you know out of all of these random pieces. But then like the the prose writing for me is the emotional part. And getting in, like getting in character, and then writing that from that character's point of view, and putting your head in that point of view for a while, and creating a scene that's 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 really what they're feeling is mentally exhausting to me. Maybe as an introvert, I don't know, but like oh, I wow. find that part really exhausting. And so, it, so like I, I I put off doing it, and then when I've done it, I feel really like drained and like need to recharge before I can do it again. And so it's 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 as Mike says, it's two different phases of the creative process rather than just doing it all at once. Well, I would say that for me, like I, um, my brother once told me you're a method writer and I don't think he's wrong. Cause I like, I just like LARP my books. Like, I think, I think Miles probably is with me on this. I just LARP my books. Like I just am like, okay, well I'm going to do something with 13th century Occitan right now. So I guess I'd better get some recipes from that so that I can cook them at home and understand what that food tastes like. And like, I do the research, like I will like listen to the music they were listening to. I will read the literature they were reading. Um, I will get into every aspect of the history. I will buy swatches of cloth that were woven in the same way that they wove them and see what Alina, that feels are we the like. Same person? <laughs> I mean, I feel like, I feel like we're going to really well together. They'll get along really well. That's because, what like, all these books are. 
If right, exactly. Would... All my books are like cookbooks, like Occitan cookbooks, medieval cookbooks. I have cookbooks of all the dishes from Shah Jahan's um, personal chef and and actually dishes from um, from all of the other Mughal emperors as well for Stealing Thunder. I have like so many, like in my list, the Hawks for Stealing Thunder. They're all based on the fact that I like trained falcons for a living for a while. And like Miles, basically the whole thing is. Miles, Alina, Alina, met, Alina met Pete and I uh, at the last night exhibit at the Met, uh, which was this incredible exhibit. And we were there on the last day, an incredible exhibit about Maximilian. Last day, the last night. Uh, Miles, uh, it would have been so much better if you could have been there with us. Like it would, it was such a great day. I would have brought you. The yeah. really wait. terrible thing so, is wait, Miles, I only missed I have an doing important it question. by two days. I went wow. I was in Philly two days later visiting my best friend, and he had just he was there on the last day with his wife. So you guys were probably all in the Met at the same time, and we I, mm -hmm. yeah. all I could see was their pictures. Yeah. Right, Miles, oh. if you if you and Alina have a sword fight, and you're both hmm. using claymores, can you still be social? I mean, uh, yeah. what depends on what claymore are you talking about? Are you talking about like the two-handed sword? Or are you talking about the later broadsword that's also called a claymore? It's, because it's, the, the, a the, the big, the big, like you know, braveheart. A montante, a montante. Yeah, if we're using can montante, can you social distance would... if you're if you're that far apart without? Not if, if you don't. No, because you have to close. Yes, yeah, yeah, the kill zone. If we get to close play, all of a sudden it's it's. Uh, dangerous but you can't really fight we close might be with off. a claymore. Yes, you can. Any long sword fighting. I don't know. Long sword is, is a crowbar to allow you to get to close play. Yes. Actually, uh, I mean, uh, I mean, if you're in armor, this, this is why armor, I don't have any swords in my books. You'll appreciate. You'll appreciate <laughs> this, Miles. Uh, I, I tweeted out idly, like I, 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 I re reviewed a book by Eric Lowe called "On the Use of Medieval Weaponry" for a quote. Um, it's excellent. And it's a he's a HEMA practitioner, and he but he did a really great historical analysis too. Um, it's a wonderful piece of public history, and I did give the quote, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what people think of it. But um, I tweeted idly, you know, if it wasn't for this pandemic, I would go try out HEMA. And immediately, Alina is is DMing me on Twitter, being like, I can give you exercises right now and start training. So you're we'll ready. We'll just do our video and do it. Yeah, you're you're ready to start. The, so the the thing about armor is that it's real and it really works. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it's crazy. So so when you have really good armor, people pretty much can't hit you or hurt you unless they yeah. put you on the ground first. Yeah. Which is why and stab you through your eye slot. Like, yeah, like which there. is why so many world martial arts that have descended to us in fractures have to do with close grappling and ground fighting, because when you're in armor, you're really hard to hurt. Yeah. Until mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. on the ground and helpless. Ah, and Miles, I wish you could. I, I wish you'd been at the Met with us. That Unless you day. have a pole axe. Yeah. In which case. You're you you you're fucked. So that's fine. Or, like or even Henry the Eighth, Henry the Eighth would not spar with Polaks against his friends because you couldn't spar for pleasure with a Polaks even in full to, armor in the 16th century. So Alina, in modern in modern HEMA combat, I won't fight Polaks anymore because they've had two concussions and our Polaxes are rubber. Like I just had a I just had a concussion from from Blosfect and I was wearing a mask that was a little bit ill fitting and uh, back in February. Uh, the guy did a Dershwechsel and I missed it and I walked right into it really hard and hit me in the head. And the end of that week, I didn't know what had happened that week. I didn't know what the days were. I didn't like, and so this is actually like, 
like talking about, you know, your process is different depending on brain plasticity scares the hell out of me because I was like, there was a period of about a month and a half where I just was like, I have, to, I can't see bright lights. I can't really drive a and, car. I can't. And, like, yet, and, yet and, and went, Alina and I were texting throughout this entire period. And, and yet, Alina, you went, you went canoeing or kayaking on the river in that period. Yeah, well, I'm not going to sit around and do nothing. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just like to say that you I got my concussion. I was, so, I was so worried, Miles. I was like, holy shit, Alina just went canoeing on this freaking river. It's a windy day. She has With a, a concussion. concussion. Like, what am I going to do if there's a problem? Oh. I mean, I was just like, you know, the Coast Guard will save me. Mike oh. will be there. Yeah. Some younger yeah. version of Mike. I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Well... <laughs> That was good a good decisions one. made. Well, anyway, you got better. Um, and Supposedly, I mean, I, I can't fifty thousand words. Well, you're writing again. Yeah, I don't know if it's good or not. I guess my agent <laughs> would be like, hmm. This, this conversation took a strange turn. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's my fault. It's my I, fault. I honestly wanted to let it. I wanted to see where it went. I love <laughs> it. I, burnout. Yeah, yeah, yeah the conversation a, is is unfair to Mike Curry, who is not getting his fair <laughs> amount of time. Reenactment, reenactment Mike combat. Perry, tell us about your live was, action sword fighting experience. Um, I choose not to. Uh, I, I was going to ask a question. You know, coming back sure. to this question of um, this issue of the perfecting of your craft, do you think it's a um, something that happens at a steady, a steady pace, or is it something that works by sort of sudden jumps forward, crises and saccades? Do, do, do you develop constantly or do you develop, develop as a result of grappling with particular things at particular times? Mm. That sounds to me like you have an answer to that question that's interesting and I would like to hear it. No, I mean, I, I, it's a spectrum. You know, yeah, you, there's no yeah. there's no one or the other, you know, like there, like there is the slow incremental work that makes your work better. You know, the, the long editing process of like, I'm gonna retell her this sentence and I'm gonna retell her that sentence and I'm take out these extraneous words and I'm going to, you know, like there's that process, which is just tedious. And then there are these big moments where it's like, Oh, I see the big hole in the, in the story. And now that I see it, I can go back and trim these things and fix it. And like that, you know, so there, there are these moments, these, these big like Eureka moments, where you see something in a new way and you and, and that makes you make the story better. But there are also these incremental, like I can fix this, I can fix this, I can make this sentence better, I can make this voice better, uh, I can make this character you know, uh, streamline in a bunch of important facts about themselves in the middle of this conversation and no one will even know, but it's there. Like there are little things that you can do step by step, but there are also gotcha moments that really make a big difference. And, and in the end, who can say which one is more important? I'm stuck mm -hmm. on the fact that Mike used the term cicades. And I consider myself to be a very intelligent person who is proficient in the use of I'm English. And I've never heard that word before in my life. It's where instead uh, of tracking something steadily with your eyes, your eyes flick around places. That's a cicade. That just means a sudden jump, mm -hmm. a discontinuity. <laughs> I mean, Mark. you probably are going to have nothing but cicades. You will not have smooth tracking at this point, Mike Cole. Mike, but, um, <laughs> Mike, Mike I, I, I didn't know. I didn't know what it meant either. I just pretended. Thank it. you, yeah. thank Ditto, you, Mike. Pete. Thank it, you, Miles. He just agreed. That's. Uh, <laughs> it even sounds to me like it has. I'm being honest. Greek root, and I didn't like, get it at all. I was going to say, like, I'm oh, God, really? I'm like, I'm like, oh shit! I'm in a room with smart people. I, I know. know. Three year old. I, I have to agree with everything. <laughs> I know it because of birds. I used to train birds. Shit. I'm just like, oh yeah, really? Okay. 
Mike, I'm sorry. You asked an intelligent question, and once again, I have managed to derail the entire panel. <laughs> uh, no, I, I was, I was going to say that uh, one, of, one of the big, uh, the big sort of discontinuities for me, the big jumps forward, um, that could not have been predicted. I, I, I spent two years, um, 2012 to 2014, collaborating with, um, with two women, uh, my wife and our daughter. We wrote two novels together. And we did it by um, triangulating on a style and a voice that worked for all three of us. We wrote sample chapters. We read them aloud to each other. We argued a lot about the voice and the tone. And we ended up with a, a kind of um, a pastiche style, a style that worked for all three of us. And I came out of that um, two-year period sensitized to stuff that I used to do by default. I was sort of like thinking about things that I, I just usually just did without uh, without any conscious reflection at all. And that was when I wrote, uh, it was coming out of that, that I wrote Girl With All The Gifts, which I think was mm. enormously different from anything I'd written up to that time. Um, present tense, multiple points of view, uh, very, very short declarative sentences. Um, it was it was basically, it was uh, take, taking risks that, uh, that I so hadn't it, been taking. Well, this is good because it, Girl with All the Gifts obviously is a very, very famous and a very, very successful book. So what do you think, um, what changed? Like, so, so like clearly this two year period was some kind of great leap forward for you, right? Yeah. What changed? So. What specifically changed? I think it was just that um, I, I, I was, I was at, at that stage, I was writing the same book again and again. When I was writing the cast of novels, um, they worked to a formula. They had a voice which was kind of borrowed from Raymond Chandler with the serial numbers filed off. Um, and I was comfortable doing that. Uh, and I might have gone on doing it for a long, long time. Um, coming out of those uh, writing um, City of Silk and Steel and House of War and Witness, um, I just found that it was easier to play games. It was easier to play games with voice and style. It was easier to sort of um, to depart from the way I did it before. So it wasn't, it, was, it wasn't a specific thing. It was a freedom. It was degrees of freedom, I think. Do you know what gave you that freedom? Like, do you, have you, I mean, it's a really interesting question because The Girl with All the Gifts was, unless I'm, unless I'm mistaken, that was your breakout book, right? That was the book yeah. that made, okay, so. But it's so exactly you, what you've been saying, Mike, is that it's where you are in your life. You know, and that colors your, your perspective and that changes the way that you write. And, and I think like, the way I write kids now that I have kids is very different than the way I would have written kids before. And, and like my main character in the, in this new book is intersex. And that has absolutely changed the way I look at language on a level that, that, you know, like every sentence that has a gendered word, I'm looking at that sentence with a level of attention that I would never have bothered with uh, uh, before that, because, mm my head wasn't in that space and it's not that i like don't care about those things but it, it, there were things you know there was just a, a way that gendered language works when you learn a language when you learn french everything is gendered when you learn english a lot of things are gendered and, and it's not until you you start saying like oh wait now i need to take that apart that it changes the whole perspective on how you write and i think certainly like writing a book by committee uh writing a book by committee like with your with your uh, uh wife and with your daughter uh, and having to, to get to a level of, of agreement is going to change the way that you look at that whole uh, story and change the way you look at your female characters uh, uh, dramatically. And, and so, like, it's, it's where you are in your life. It's another, it's an extension of that. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. 
and practice. I think it's practice. You said you spent what two years? You said writing that with your with your wife and your daughter. I mean, two years of practice writing a totally different style than what you're that's, used to that's, writing. That's thirty years in Alina time. <laughs> I, I mean, two years. Two years is like two years is like twelve novels. I mean, that's a long time. Well, but but, but like it's a but it's, novels, you know, no. but it's a fascinating it question is. because when you when you when us when people come to me on Twitter as a published writer. Aspiring writers all want the same thing, right? They want the magic key. How do I produce work that will get me published by the big New York houses? And then when I talk to other mid-listing writers, I'm a mid-listing writer. When I talk to the mid-listing writers, the, the, the magic key we're all chasing is what will give me a breakout novel? What will give me a book that will get a movie deal that will be a New York Times bestseller? What is the secret formula to that? And what's fascinating about what out in 2008 with a hooded, hooded character on the cover. Um, I mean, you know, but 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 the thing that's fascinating, Mike, about what you're describing is, and I and I and I and I don't know that there's a a, a packaged answer that you can give, right? It it may be that the that the process is opaque to you, but what you are in effect describing is that magic key, right? You're describing a period in your life where prior to that you're you're doing well, but you're mid listing. And then after that, I mean, The Girl of the Gifts, a famous book, right? You're going to die. That book will be known to people 100 years from now. Um, um, well, I five, mean. Five years, <laughs> six years. Uh, I mean, that, The Girl of All the Gifts, The Girl of the Gifts. work is really going to stand up over time. I, think. I mean, that's true, too. But Thank the you. point is, is that, is that th there's, a, there's a difference in the level of success between your prior work and this work. And so I, I would wager that, that audiences would be really interested in knowing, to the extent that you know, what changes in this period? But I think I think to some extent it's not a it's not something that you're in control of. Um, I mean, definitely, Girl with All the Gifts was written in a different style and in a different voice to the cast of novels and the mainstream thrillers. Um, but the other thing that happened was I gave that into my publishers and they they looked at it and they thought, ah, this could be a crossover book. It could appeal to it's a zombie novel but it could be read by people who don't read zombie novels. Um, so they marketed it in a specific way. They didn't use the Z word in any of the pre-publicity. Um, they put more marketing muscle behind it. They, they did a big ARC and sent it out to a lot of people. Um, it's, like, it's partly that they decided it could succeed in a different way. And mm. they, but they, they made them. that decision based on the quality of the work. It's not like they just pick any old book and put all of that muscle behind it. They put they or pick the that book. Appeal. They pick that right. book very carefully right. because because it has the chops to go that distance. Right. You know, uh, it's still, you, it, you still have to stand on the quality of your work. Like I, I like I, I I'm not downplaying the efforts of the publisher because publishers do a lot more than people think they do. But I also don't want you to downplay your own achievement because your own achievement is great here and would not have gotten that level of, of uh, uh, promotion if, it, if the, the quality of the work wasn't there. I, 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 am, I, I am proud of the book. It's just, I, I, I don't know whether the book, whether the success of the book is to do with, um, the, the, is, is solely a, a question of the writing of the book, uh, whether it's partly a question of marketing, partly a question of, um, time and place and, and serendipity i mean the, the other thing that was different was um i was screenwriting uh properly for the first time and i was writing the screenplay for the for the 
that story at the same time as, as I was writing the novel, mm. which, pro which probably affected the storytelling in a fairly profound way. Mike, why were you why were you writing the screenplay synchronously with synchronously with the novel? Did, was it optioned before the novel? I mean, what what was the motivator behind that? Uh, there was a short story called Iphigenia and Alice, um, and the short story became both the novel and the film. So you had you had Hollywood interest based on the short story while you were writing the novel. That was a motivator. It was BFI interest. It was um, you know it was it was uh, a British thing, not not a not a Hollywood thing. I I don't know what BFI. Do you mind British uh, Film Institute? Yeah, British Film Institute. So it, it, initially, it was purely um, the seed money came from the UK. And it was quite small amounts. In the end, we got Warner's um, on board as the UK distributors, and that released a bit more money. But I think I think writing the screenplay and the novel side by side meant that I approached the storytelling in a different way. I think it probably made it uh, made it leaner. And well, how, how, well, how leaner, sharper? How so? If you um, don't mind me. I, I guess if focus be down a lot more. Um, there's there's not much wasted space in a screenplay. In a screenplay, pretty much every every line has to has to earn its keep, and you you, was, get, you you get challenged if you if you put stuff in just because it's a cool character beat or it's a nice emotional touch or whatever, you'll get challenged on it if it's not there for a storytelling purpose. Mm. So, I, I, so I think that fed back into the book. Mm. This was this was what happened when I tried to write comics, and I guess also when I tried to write a first person book is, is you know like you enter in saying like oh I'm a writer and I. I've read a lot of comics and I love comics. And so I know how to write comics, but you know, I think maybe one fifth of the prose that I wrote in my scripts made it into the comic yep. because there was a whole shift of perspective that I had to make where like, I would describe these things for the artist and then the art comes back and like, okay, now I need to make the story work with this art. And that means throwing away a lot of the stuff that I had right. written. And so that learning curve, made me a much leaner and tighter storyteller yep. um, in, in the same way that that when I was a dungeon master in college, like keeping a bunch keeping five or six people entertained and interested meant that you couldn't, you know, roll out the story in the sort of slow way that you wanted to, you know, we're like, oh, they talk to the innkeeper and the innkeeper gives them a rumor and that rumor leads them over here. And then you know, like you plan all this stuff out and then they just kill the innkeeper and take his stuff and you have to figure out a way to keep everybody entertained. You know, so those- No outlines, no outlines. Those moments change you as a writer. Absolutely. Yeah. Writing comics writing comics is absolutely, uh, Mike and I, I'm, I'm, uh, and Alina. Miles, have you worked on comics at all? I've done three graphic novels. Okay, all right. So then, everyone here will. I, I don't think anybody. I don't think here will disagree with me. But uh, I found that that this is my first comic I've ever worked on. Um, but the experience and 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 to approach it, what did I do? I read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, which for yeah. those of you, it is for those of you in the audience who are unfamiliar with this, please read it. It is a comic book itself about how to make comics, and it's just and how a, comics work. Even Correct. if you're not a comic creator, it's, it's right. worth reading. It's, great it's really amazing. Um, uh, and then I read his comic, The Sculptor. But the point is, I, I, I went to school. But that process of um, distilling things down. So one of my favorite openings in a novel is in Joe Abercrombie's The Heroes. 
Joe Abercrombie has these two characters meeting uh, on what will soon be a battlefield, and they have a very short conversation. I'm talking a page and a half tops. And you come away from these very few lines of dialogue with a complete understanding of who the characters are, what their motivations are, what their internal flaws are that keep them from achieving their goals, what the world is, what the conflict is. This is all delivered in a page and a half in a few lines of punchy dialogue. When you read truly great comics, 100 Bullets, 3, uh, Fables, uh, these are some of my favorite comics, you see in the... In the Hellblazers, of course. Yeah, sorry, Mike. I mean, look, I, I work. I work with your artists. No, that's no, the, that's the best compliment. The best compliment I can pay you is I'm working with Tony Akins. Um, uh, but that process of, of of that distillation that you're describing, Pete and I have a term for this. We call it "all mules must haul wood." That any that's your, word, that's your term. This is Pete's term that he forced me to use. Um, is it, that when we write novels? It's one of those military speak things that Mike has just gotten me to say sometimes. Right. Well, but but, but Mike, the, the point here is that is that one of the things we do, and I think it was Alina who said that she savagely prunes her manuscripts, is that process of going back through and looking at every sentence and saying, "Does this further character? Does this further plot? Does this need, or is this a flourish?" You know, it's funny in architecture. Uh, if you're submitting an architecture project to a grading committee. That committee will often bounce aspects of your building and they'll call it arbitrary. If you're an architect, the term arbitrary is the kiss of death. Something being arbitrary means that you just put it in there and it has no purpose. And, and it's how you fail an architecture class. I just know this from having friends that are architects. But the same is true in the, in the uh, screenwriting and comic writing process, that distillation down to making sure that every mule is hauling wood that furthers either plot or, or, or character. That's an experience I've had from writing comics and it's made me a lot better. And it sounds like it's sort of what you're describing in your own. Yeah, yeah, it's what, what I meant when I said that I learned to write by doing comics. You know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't structure story until I did it in the comic book. Um, but, I, but I think in a more general yeah, way- working within those confines. But it's, it's, great, it's great as a writer to work in different media because uh, every medium is a toolbox and the tools in the box are not the same. And so you, you learn a lot about your craft by being forced to sort of jump between uh, different forms of storytelling, I think. Actually, I um yeah. I have two I have two pieces there that that most people I think don't have. One is intelligence writing. So I'm an intelligence officer now for the private sector, and I was an intelligence officer. And I think Miles, so were you, right? You did intel. So intelligence writing is a. She's like we're back not, in his chair, yeah. like yes, I did do intelligence work. Like, <laughs> well, he looks like a villain. <laughs> right. So don't yeah. confuse. Yeah, he's like Mike. Don't talk about this. Why are you talking about this? <laughs> I'm a terrible intelligence officer. But so intelligence writing, intelligence writing is interesting in that intelligence writing is you have to give information and analysis to operational commanders and decision makers, and it must be bereft of emotion. It must be. Because what you have to do is give them clear information that they can use to make decisions. And if you emote at all, then you are leading the witness, so to speak. And they may make decisions based on your emotive and, and oftentimes you're talking about things that invite emotion. You're talking about foreign governments that are attempting to uh, influence an American election. You are talking about terrorism, acts of terrorism that are resulting in civilian dead. And this act of sanitizing this of emotion is a completely different kind of writing. And yet when you write history, which is something else that Miles has done, 
or when you do journalism, which is something I've done. I'm not sure if other folks on here have also done journalism. It's something I'm doing more and more of, both history and journalism. This kind of analytical style of writing, this antiseptic, uh, just the facts and analysis that's supported by data is exactly what Mike is describing. You are still writing, right? It's the same, it, it has this in common with your fiction, but the goal and the um, underpinnings are completely different. And in fact, in many ways, opposite. And so like this experience of using this set of tools that you have, because in fiction writing, what do you want to do? You want to evoke emotion. You want to yeah. create resonance and wonder. Man, you don't want to do that in an intelligence product. Like that is the end of the world if you have done something like that. And it's amazing. Um, it's not something I talk about much, and maybe I should, but it is amazing to see the overlap of these things, that how his writing history has impacted me as a fiction writer, how writing intelligence has impacted me as a fiction writer, because it surely has. All right, guys, I hate to cut it. Uh, we, uh, we're just about out of time. So everybody take a moment to pimp a book since we can't do this in person and have signings or anything. So Miles, if you want to start. Uh, pimp one of your 41 books. Uh, <laughs> I write fairly fast, so I always have a couple of books in the uh, Cold Iron is my current fantasy series. I'm actually writing a Bronze Age anti-surveillance capitalism series right now, but we won't get yes. into that because it's still a secret. Uh, so uh, my current fantasy is Cold Iron. Uh, there's three of them. They're all done. The series is done. Um, I hear they're good. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, my current historical is called The Last Greek. It's about Philippimen. Uh, Philippimen of Ikea uh, sort of invented the world of today in terms of uh, uh, federal states and the idea that groups of states or provinces could be gathered together in a federation. He was also a hell of a good soldier and a fairly deep thinker. And I really enjoy Stoic philosophy. I try to put philosophy into every book I write. And he was a pretty decent philosopher. So there, there's my spiel. And by the way, this has been really fun. Uh, really great getting to see you. And Mike Carey, I'm a big Some fan. Here, I, I, didn't, I didn't emote all the way through this, but I just want to say like, uh, wow. Okay. Anyway. I think I've lost everybody. I, I lost. <laughs> all right, Alina. Sure. Um, so Stealing Thunder is my debut book. It is out um, now as of May 12th. Yes, hiding my face. Um, and um, I was asked in an interview to describe it in like five words. And I was like, oh, it's... Um, Pretty Woman with Dragons in Mughal, India. And um, that's not too far off the mark. It's got a trans girl main character, the first major um, fantasy book to do that. And um, yeah, I think it's really cool. I brought a lot to it that um, maybe I shouldn't have brought to it, like like fighter piloting with, with dragons. Like, I don't know why I felt the need why to have like- Why would you not like, bring that to it? Well, because right? nobody else has ever brought that to it, right? It's the first time anybody's been exactly. like- Exactly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hmm? Well, I have air to air combat with dragons. Too. <laughs> do you, oh, okay, okay, but but do they follow the rules of BFM? Are they lead and lag pursue? You know, pursuing their their other dragons or like? I mean, I was an, I, I was an, I, I was an naval aviator. I I oh perfect. I then the, we're good. Then we're I, good. I, I can, I can chase weird, a watch like, with my hand. Torn in half thing going on here. I we we are just gonna get, right we're now. gonna get together so well because I'm just gonna be like you know because I think we I got I got I got, got lag there's like a lag roll defense to a high side guns pass in my book and it's great. So I would, nobody wants to read it now. Um, anyway, so whatever, it's, uh, it's, it's fun. It's, uh, it's got a cool setting. 
I hope you like it. It'll be out. Um, well, it's out now, and then the sequel will be out in a year. So, um, if I if I get to my edits and do them in time, so yeah. So I've got a, a fantasy novel that just came out in the UK and USA called The Book of Coley, which is the first volume in a trilogy. It's post-apocalyptic. It's about two or three centuries after the, the fall of our current global uh, civilization. It's a coming-of-age story. It's a young teenage boy in the north of England um, trying to become, trying, trying to pass a test which will make him become a member of the elite group in his society, failing the test and then basically going wandering um, through the world and discovering our world through um, through discovering his. Uh, I've also got a horror, horror um, graphic novel coming out from DC uh, in September called uh, The Dollhouse Family which uh, was reunited me with Peter Gross um, and uh, Todd Klein and Vince Locke. And it, it just looks, it looks gorgeous. Fantastic. Pete? Awesome. Uh, yeah, it looks like we lost Mike. Um, yeah, where'd Mike go? <laughs> uh, he, he, he was, was having some technical issues. I'm, I'm like texting with him. Like, like he, he had a technical issue. He dropped off. Like he'll, if he can come back on, he will. Um, we can so, 16 plush for him. <laughs> So uh, this is the Warded Man. My mom says it's super good. It's the first book in my series. Blah blah blah. I, I want to pimp Alina's book. Um, Stealing Thunder came out this week, and you know what? Like all the bookstores are closed, and and I thought that this yeah. book was going to take the world by storm because it's so amazing, and like it's a little harder right now because of you know. Plays. I will buy a copy uh, today. But thank you. Uh, it, <laughs> I, I was given the manuscript of it by the editor and I read it on a plane, like a, 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 a transatlantic flight. And I basically like read the entire book in one sitting on that flight. And it wow. was freaking amazing. And I am like, like so happy that it's out in the world now and other people can see it because it's such a fantastic book. And so uh, I just bought the audio book. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it all over again uh, in a different format. And I, I really recommend that everybody else should too. Thanks. Thanks so much, Peter. It does read. It, it does read as fast as I wrote it, so that's that's good. I read um, the thing. I read it in about as long as the computer. Yes. And then uh, I guess for Mike, uh, he just had 16th Watch come out uh, from Angry Robot, and he's also got a trilogy from Tor, uh, which is called I think it's the Sacred Throne. Uh, I read oh, yeah, the trilogy. It's freaking amazing. Mike's Wi-Fi went out. That's that's his problem. Okay. Um, and so, uh, Sacred Throne trilogy, uh, Armored Saint is the first book. Those are fantastic books. Absolutely worth your time. He also has the Shadow Ops books uh, from Ace Rock. Uh, there's two trilogies there. Also fantastic work. Uh, also, Legion vs. Phalanx, Phalanx is his. Legion yeah. versus Phalanx. I got a lot of fans who have already loved that, so I'll just throw in a. It's a great uh, book. Yeah, it's, I it's read a that really, one too. Really, really good book, and everyone should own. My dad loves it. Yeah. Let me pimp 16th Watch, though, because 16th Watch I read an advanced copy of. And I just want to say, when he was like, oh, I'm doing a military sci-fi. I was like, OK, military sci-fi, great. And he's like, I'm doing military sci-fi with the Coast Guard. I was like, oh, what? The Coast Guard? Coast, Coast Guard in I was Space like, is the real tagline. Coast Guard in Space. And I was like, I was like, oh, my god. It's actually a realistic military sci-fi. Like, I, I love my space starfighters. And I know that they would never happen. And it doesn't doesn't work that way but I, I love them because i like airplanes but like then when he was like coast guard i was like oh my god and that's my first the search and rescue crews get no cred yeah you know? and but the they, they do all the they do all it. the hard work like, yeah and, and i read it and it was the first one i read where i was like this is what's going to happen in the future like this is what the future will look like not like oh this is a cool story so it's pretty neat yeah, yeah. you should check it out 
Fantastic. Well, everybody, Miles uh, Navy steal all the glory, but yeah, right. <laughs> well, everybody, uh, thank y'all so much for taking the time out of your day to come be on the panel. Uh, it has been amazing listening to y'all. I mean, obviously, I only asked one question, and you guys just took it. So, thanks for making my afternoon a little easier. But uh, thank y'all so much. Uh, I know everybody that's been tuning in has been ranting and raving about it, and I wish this panel could go on longer, but. You know, unfortunately, we've got two more coming up. So, uh, but let's uh, let's maybe try to do this again and, and try to continue That'd the conversation cool. uh, at a later date, especially if this whole thing continues for who knows how long. Uh, but yeah. I'd love to get y'all together again and chat some more. So, but just thank y'all again, and uh, you'll enjoy the rest of your weekends and stay safe. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, guys. Thank y'all.